It is another day here on a Priest and Rabbi podcast here with Rabbi Durbin and myself. And today we are going to try to take on how do you lift up religious leaders uh, during this uh, very rambunctious and cantankerous time in our country? How do you meet the needs of people that are searching and seeking God on a digital landscape? Um, how do you meet the needs of people who seek and need uh, physical fellowship and to be around one another, but we can't have that happen. How do you meet the needs of a congregation that might be diametrically opposed to how they view society, politics, economics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's going to be uh, today. Um, and so the, the way we're going to approach this today and, and, and Rabbi, uh, are you with me on this yet? Or did you show up actually for a different podcast? Cause we can go back and change. I'm ready for you to take a breath so I can talk. No, I just want to make sure because sometimes I just go off and then you realize, no, Christian, this is the wrong day. We're actually talking about the theology of monster trucks. Rally. Look, this is this, this is classic example of how we as Jews and as Christians approach the world. The, you we mean, Christians just talk, the, cross, the Christians talk too much and the Jews are just waiting to get a word in. Is that what you're saying? You said it, not me. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can agree with that. Um, okay, so so Rabbi, today we're going to talk about this, and we, we, the next two weeks are going to be exciting. So, can you tell us what's going to happen over the next two weeks here on the podcast? So, you know, we're real, we're real excited. I mean, not only you know today do we have uh, you know the uh, the very Reverend um, um, Ian Markham here from uh, Virginia. Uh, Theological Seminary, uh, but next week I will have uh, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Deborah Khan Harris, who will join us. Um, she is the the she is the. She is, she does before she comes on. <laughs> she she is the uh, she is the principal at Leo Beck College uh, in London, um, and uh, you know, kind of looking at how we train uh, our clergy. You know, uh, what are the what are the challenges set before us, especially in a world today? How are we approaching technology and informing, you know, our students and future leaders of our communities? Um, and and what is the, you know, what is that 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 ability to inspire and influence us, um, uh, and how it goes forward? Um, especially looking at it from both, you know, today looking at it from a a, a America North American centered uh, approach. And perhaps next week, looking at it at a very European uh, model in terms of how Europe uh, has been approaching it. Um, and I think that there are vast differences between the United States, certainly uh, North America, Canada, you know, the United States, Mexico, uh, and then certainly looking at it from a, a European perspective. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled. I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be an interesting, um, um, and, and, and I, I hope for our listeners, a very thought provoking uh, session today uh, with uh, the, um, the very Reverend um, Ian Markham, uh, as well as uh, for next week with uh, with our guest from from Europe. And oddly enough, and maybe it's just because of the spirit of the show, we're always trying to mix it up. Um, and so to confuse everyone even more, the person who's coming on the show today to represent the American version of how we're doing religious formation is actually a Brit. Um, who then became an American, uh, I, I believe, uh, 2010. So, um, and he has just arrived here um, at our Zoom studio. And so uh, it's, it's the very Reverend Dr. Ian Markham. Is, is that you, sir, at the door? It is indeed. See, see, we weren't lying. You heard the accent. It's legitimate. That is not a fake accent. Um, you can test that with other Brits. Um, all right. So ladies and gentlemen, 
We will now begin this next episode. So before you jump into this podcast, though, it would be a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, act of love uh, if you would subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think would get excited about listening to a, a wild priest and a rabbi just to go back and forth on uh, hot topics and always look through a Judeo-Christian lens when we do that. Uh, so please, whatever platform you're on, subscribe, leave a comment. Even if you hate us, you can't stand us. When you hate on us, you still improve our analytics. So we thank you for that. Um, so, um, and share this with all of your best friends, but be let's now jump into uh, this next episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. from on this show do not represent WSTU, since they probably regretted over-allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Payam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Producer Evan, I think we're super loud here. This sounds cacophonous. Okay, everyone. Welcome to A Priest and a Rabbi here. This is Father Christian, and next to me is the most handsome rabbi you've seen this side of the Jordan River. It is Rabbi Derber from Temple Bechayim, and I am Father Christian from St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Steered, Florida. Uh, just to note that anything that we say does not represent our parishes today, because if they, if we did, if they did, we'd probably be sent back home. Uh, but we are happy to be here with you and to talk to you about just the lovely world of religious formation right now in, in a wild times in our country and in our world. How do you form religious leaders that can really meet the needs? We're seeing needs from our communities um, that, that haven't been asked for in a very, very, very long time, probably since the early 19th century. So how do people like Rabbi Durbin and myself and around the whole, let's say country, respond to these needs of congregations that represent very, very different views um, that has led to violence, et cetera, um, at the very least, a lot of deep protests. Um, so, Rabbi, first of all, I just want to say good morning, you handsome devil, or you, I, I, maybe that's not proper to say devil. So, good morning, you handsome gentleman of the cloth. It's good you to know, see you. You know, you know, you know, Father Anson, it's fine by me. You know, we Jews don't believe in the devil. So, you know, in terms of, of, of that, you know, sure. Um, you know, interesting, you know, given, given the conversation that you just said, too, because I, I've given a lot of thought especially, you know, post-ordination, how do we as, as, as clergy or even those entering into seminary, how do we uh, get less jaded by the world and less exhausted? I mean, we're living in, in, in a very stressful and a very complicated and challenging world today that I think for many of us are in, um, what's the term, COVID fatigue, we're tired. Right, we've been serving our communities literally 24/7, um, and how do we find for ourselves 
you know, the, the, the sacred space, the time to recharge and to really be present. Um, I know when I was in rabbinical school, uh, you know, during, during my tenure, you know, my colleagues and I would, would often ask through practical rabbinics or pastoral care, you know, when, when do rabbis get that ability to, you know, to, to recharge and relax? Um, and I was quite shocked by the response given by one of my, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, which was uh, the moment you take your last breath, um, which, which uh, I, I don't agree with. But, you know, interesting to, to see from a seminary perspective, how we're training future leaders to serve communities, um, to have the same energy and excitement and love and passion uh, and, 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 and not be burdened by, um, you know, the extenuating, you know, challenges in our world, not to, not, you know, not to get us down. Yeah, you know, there was a, a term that was used all the time uh, at the seminary I attended, Virginia Theological Seminary, where they um, always came back to this idea of self-care. And I will admit, many of us in my class thought it was a bunch of hogwash and we would laugh at it and be like, why do they keep on hitting this over them? I mean, do they think we need to be pampered? Like, just, just let's man up, woman up and get out there and let's just do the hard work. I learned quickly once I encountered many of the grenades you encounter in ministry that go off that if you don't do self-care, I man, you will burn out. And I can see why that stat, and I, we have a guest today we'll probably be able to talk to this, is that this, this, the big time when a lot of uh, ministers tap out is after the third year. They get, you know, they feel the call to God, they jump in, they want to be a rabbi, or they want imam, be a priest, and they go in there and for three years, they're like, yeah, screw this. I'm going back to selling, you know, um, real estate and make more money and work less hours and I don't have people all attacking me all the time. Um, so self-care is huge. It's huge. There's a reason why the Lord said you must take a Sabbath. That is a commandment, not a suggestion. <laughs> that is law. Um, but it's, it's so point. interesting because how often as clergy do we say and, and impress the need for self-care but in, in, in practicality, we, we, we actually don't, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, I, for me personally, I try as best I can to, you know, have that veil or to have some distance so that I am able, uh, but, you know, easier said than done in terms of how do we actually provide it for ourselves. No, that's right. So today we are going to get a, a person who's responsible for leading a big branch of all the leaders um, in the Episcopal Church and beyond the Episcopal Church. There's people, a lot of people who are, who are uh, beyond the Episcopal denomination who attend uh, Virginia Theological Seminary. And we have the honor today, it was really cool, to get uh, the very reverend, not the reverend, okay, the very reverend Dr. Ian Markham, who uh, who is what they call the the the, the head the head cheese at um, Virginia Theological Seminary, and he's going to come on and start talking to us about the um, the state of how do you form leaders to meet the needs of the uh, of the day today. So it's, it's such a different world than it was just five years ago. So I think um, I hear the door knocking. He's coming in. He just flew in on Zoom Airlines. Here he is, the very Reverend Dr. Ian Markham. Welcome to a priest and a rabbi, my friend. It's lovely to be here, and that was one of the smoothest journeys I've ever made. Yes. So thank you for getting me in safely. You didn't have to wear a mask. Remarkable show. I did not. No. No mask. See my smile. Uh, so welcome to the show. It's, it's great to have you. I assume that you're uh, zooming in from uh, from Alexandria. Uh, from Virginia. Uh, my wife and I have a little weekend place we disappear off to. So I'm actually down near Madison, near Charlottesville. Good for you. You're doing some good self-care. Well, exactly. I was uh, listening to the show. 
okay, so tell us, uh, you you have been, how long have you been um, running the show over at Virginia Theological Seminary? So let me start by saying thank you. It's a great honor to be on the show. And uh, yes, I was appointed in 2007. Um, so whatever that is, 13 years. 14 years. Um, and it's been great fun. And yes, you're right, I became a very reverend, which incidentally for the record is I think one of the silliest things about uh, these denominations, which insist that we're revered. It's, it actually goes back to the 15th century, initially just as a nice title of esteem, respect sort of thing. And then it, and then of course you get more and more elaborate. Year to be revered. I'm very to be revered. A bishop, it's right to revere a bishop. And then if you are Michael Carey, the presiding bishop, he's most to be revered. I mean, this is just so stupid. It's a good reason not to be in the Episcopalian, but uh, that's the system. So that started in the 15th century. Yeah, basically. So here we are, we, we've taken these orders to be these humble servants of Jesus Christ and be very selfless and not make it about ourselves. But yet our tradition says, yeah, but some of you are a little more, a little more reverent than others. Uh, exactly. I mean, indeed. And, and uh, you know, the excuse we have is others wanted to give us this designation. But I think some designations we probably should have turned down. Exactly. Yeah, silly, really. So anyway, so you now have the title, and and, and that's so now uh, since you have the title and you're run with the title, um, how how do you feel about uh, that title? Were you always um, seeking and looking to become a, a a very revered person, or were you kind of just at one point just comfortable with being in, in just an unrevered laity person. So I'll give you my very abridged uh, journey of faith. Uh, I grew up in a crazy home as a kid in the exclusive brethren, uh, which taught total, se total separation from the world, was fundamentalist. Uh, the founder, John Nelson Darby in the 19th century invented the concept of the rapture. Um, and uh, we had no TV, no radio, nobody was allowed to come into my house, we were allowed to celebrate Christmas, Easter, we had big families, that was a big relief. Um, so I had a crazy upbringing, rebelled against it in college, um, and then slowly refound my faith and became a professor of theology, that's what you do when you have a strange upbringing, you then become utterly preoccupied with the questions about faith and religion. Um, did the whole academic tenure, write books thing, uh, got a job at Hartford Seminary in Connecticut, which was a really interesting school, one third Muslim, significant Jewish uh, population in Hartford, a really interesting place. In 2001, I mean, you know, arrived in the summer, guess what happened on September the 11th, extraordinary season of my life and ministry, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was while I was there, Finally, I responded to a tapping on my shoulder, which had been so persistent. I mean, mm. ever since I was 13, which said, okay, you really ought to be a priest. And I said, I don't really want to be a priest. I don't fancy being a priest. I enjoy the life I've got now. I went through the entire process saying to every single discernment group, look, you need to know I'm, I'm making myself available because of fellowship. But if you turn around and say, no, we don't recognize a calling you, do you know, I'll be so pleased. I would just go off and carry on living my life. Did you really say it's that? You were told oh, that? yeah. At every single stage, I said, I'm here because I feel I should be. I'm not here because I necessarily want to be. Uh, but I'm responding to, you know, in the end, call is a weird thing. It's, it, for me, it was like a continual pressure on my life. 
And I remember Leslie, my wife, saying to me one day, look, I'm so keen, just go and do it. And I said, but I don't want it. She said, do it. So I started the process and at every single stage said, look, I'm, I'm here because I feel I should be. But I'm not here because this is the only thing I can imagine myself doing. When I was a kid, I wanted to be prime minister. I you can know. see that. I can see Thank that you. for sure. Thank you very much. Uh, but as I grew older, I realized that's not what God wanted me to do. So here I am. And, um, and it's a great privilege. I've, it's, it's been a blast. And um, I'm very grateful for every day. Well, you're the, you're, you're, but you're kind of like the prime minister of VTS. So you, get, you got that out of the deal. Precisely. And VTS is an extraordinary place. And everybody who's listening to this show is cordially welcome to email me. And once we're post-COVID and everything else, we'll give them free accommodation on the campus and they can hang out in our refectory and they can have a pint in 1823. Yes, we are a tradition that imbibes. So, so Rabbi, I don't know if you know this, but at the seminary I attended, um, it was uh, Prime Minister Markham is the one who said, we need to have a pub on campus, if I remember this right. You, this is before my time. So on campus at Virginia Theological Seminary, there is a pub that you can go to. Uh, and I always thought it was genius. It was a little controversial and still is a little controversial for some people. Um, but you can go on campus, stay there, grab a beer. Uh, students are, are the ones who are employed, so they can make a little money there. And uh, I thought the beauty of it, too, was that we all know that ordained clergy can struggle sometimes with the bottle. And if, if some people are like, well, how could you do that? You're, you're enabling people. But it's like that the beauty of it is we all see each other. So if you all as faculty notice that, wow, uh, you know, Johnny's in the pub on a Wednesday night. He's had like three beers and we see him there all the time. You guys can, because you guys are part of the formation process as, you know, Tay, we're going to be talking about how do you form leaders? Well, alcoholism is a big deal. We were talking about self-care. A lot of people just, they're, they're the heaviness of ministry. They go home and they kind of, you know, have two, three. Sometimes it grows to four glasses of wine. That's not helping anyone. So you guys get kind of a front, you, you just put it right there and say, okay, who do we need to talk to and who do we need to work out? So I, I don't know if that's ever been helpful, but I do know that it does become a great place of congregating and fellowship. And um, uh, I never... Never, there was never once when I thought of ministry being like, man, we should get rid of this thing. And it also, it's missional. It attracts outside folks to the hill. Do they call the place yeah. on the hill? No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you've got to make sure that you can get really good non-alcoholic options. So we have non-alcoholic beers and we have non-alcoholic wine and we have uh, mocktails and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but what it stopped, it was really interesting when we started, it stopped the culture of dorm parties. And um, dorm parties were a real problem because people would get drunk late into the evening and then the complaint would come of inappropriate behavior and so on. So stop that. And you're right, it's very public. Bishops walk in all the time, the dean walks in all the time, not all the time, uh, the dean walks in. Um, you know, so, so you run, it's a, it's a public venue. And of course you pay for it, you know, it's not free. So you actually have to, and, but it does the best burger in Northern Virginia. Oh, wow. With a gin and tonic glass of wine, mm. fabulous. <laughs> very, 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 it's a very Episcopalian, very Anglican thing. So I don't know, Rabbi, if that would fly in any of the schools you attended in your formation, if there was a pub on campus. But, you know, I mean, interesting. So um, um, for those that, that, that are familiar, I, I, I did attend rabbinical school in, in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, I spent four years in London, a year in Jerusalem and finished up in New York City. Um, but where I was in London, uh, in North London, I mean, there are pubs on every single street corner. Um, and, and I think it was one of those, one of those challenges when I moved to Britain that, you know, I grew up in a cafe culture. I did not grow up in a pub culture. 
So, you know, I'd go off for lunch with my colleagues and they would order pints of beer. Um, and I remember being really, uh, you know, taken where they said, well, what's the matter? Have a pint with your burger, with your food. And I said, but I have class in an hour. And they said, one beer is not going to make a difference. And for me, it did make a difference. I, I mean, I said, I'll have a cup of coffee. Um, you know, it, it, it's not of my culture. Um, uh, but just interesting, the, you know, the, the ability that we have to unwind and, and, and be together. I've always been blown away by uh, folks in, in the UK that I don't know how y'all do it. When I was, remember, I was um, backpacking throughout there, I would go and hit the pubs around noon and there'd be businessmen in there having one, maybe two pints. And I'll, I'll be honest, man, if I drank at lunch, I, I would, my productivity level would go down by like 30% at least. So, but I don't know, I don't know. And, and, and you're, to your point, having a beer and eating a burger and, and everyone's so, like in England, I mean, I know I'm huge generalization here, but everyone usually looks like they're in pretty decent shape. You know, the, the obesity doesn't seem like to be a big issue, at least in London. And I'm like, and you, you're having pints during the day and having a burger. Um, you're not sitting around eating vegan food. I'll tell you that much and kale mm -hmm. chips. Um, and still, so I, I like to know the secret of, you know, Dr. Markham after this about the English diet, how you're able to have pints and burgers in the middle of the day and still have that nice slim figure uh, that your wife is so proud of you to have. Indeed, you know, there's a great book called The Prohibition Hangover. I can't remember who wrote it, it was a fabulous study. And the thesis of the book is Americans' obesity problem was a result of prohibition. So basically what you had is you had a culture which used to drink Okay, and then prohibition came along. And then what they did is they, they substituted the calories from alcohol by incorporating a lot of sugar. So American bread in Subway in Ireland has just been deemed a cake, which has different, has different tax status, okay? Because it's sweeter than UK bread. Okay. And so therefore what happened, and then prohibition finished, we retained our sugary imbibed bread and we have sugar and salt and everything in America. And then we added alcohol on top. And that was the thesis. Of the book. And I think there's, I think there's something to it actually. And, and I think there's something to it that what we just heard from Dr. Markham just say, we, we, so there, there, there is this celebration that we, that, that Dr. Markham, so you are an American. Is, is that what I'm hearing? So don't let the British accent fool you, fool us. In 2010, I, uh, I renounced um, and became an American citizen. And, and just FYI, I, I love this country. You know, um, we're in a difficult season right now, but I'm an America file. I, I, think, um, I think the people are warm and generous. I think there's a deep depth of religious interest and commitment in this country, which I warm to, which is not true in, in Britain. Hmm. And uh, I think there's... Um, um, it, it accommodates extraordinary diversity. Mm. I mean, just amazing diversity. You know, this really is. Um, and it lets people be um, at its best. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are, this is a weird time to sound like you're high on America because uh, we're going through a very, very difficult season. Um, but, you know, every, every country, people go through difficult seasons. We're definitely in the middle of one now. And if you stand back and tell the total story, there's much to be hopeful about and to be in awe of. You're giving so many sermon points for uh, the rabbi and myself, just feeding us. This is, this is great. Um, all right, so let's continue uh, with that. We, we are in a challenging season. 
Uh, and just America has been a challenging season this whole last year, the whole world has, but particularly now the heat has really ramped up here and it doesn't seem to be tempering down anytime soon, or at least the threat um, seems to be high as well. Um, and so from as, as clergy members here, and as you are one who is responsible for forming these, for forming leaders, um, has this last year changed or altered or led to different discernment from you and your team of how are we starting to form our leaders to meet the needs of uh, uh, this chaotic time? Because there was a time when you would just sit around with your board at a, or team at a church or at a temple and be like, okay, how are we going to approach our Bible studies and what kind of programs do we want to do? And, and now we're all thinking like, okay, how is the strategic way we can approach maybe racial reconciliation? How do we talk about truth? How do we, how do we even dance or talk about some of these topics without setting off any kind of landmines in my congregation, right? So there's just so much strategy and thought that goes into it because you never know uh, where someone's thoughts or beliefs might be. And then you might just lose your congregation or, or and then now you're just playing, you're just playing catch up. You're just trying to put out fires by just because inadvertently you said a word or a phrase. And I've seen this recently and you get a ton of emails and from something and now you're on the phone all day talking to people about something because you mentioned the phrase black lives matter um and so 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 tell me mm. how, how have you all approached this so, so i think there are two things aren't there really um there's the pandemic which has been really difficult for formation because in the end i am a believer that formation requires proximity it requires conversation, it requires getting to know people, it requires, you know, the mantra in our place is class chapel lunch. We, we study together, we take table fellowship together and we worship together, you know, and that's together, it's the operative word, so community. And I am worried about the experience of formation for seminarians who will end up, because this academic year looks shot, will end up with almost one and a half years of their three-year MDiv sort of um, at a distance. And, and I think, you know, I think there is truth in, in the grace of God takes the form of contact between people and um, that intimacy and that closeness, you know, I, I'm missing smiles like crazy, you know, I'm missing um, conversations, I hate pushing people away all the time and having to step back, you know, so I, I do think that the formation experience has been much harder. And then the other part of it is, you know, we live in this, uh, we're facing a racial reckoning for sure. We're, we're facing political polarization for sure. We're, we're showing a complete lack of um, understanding of the other. Uh, we're not engaging well with change. Um, you know, so we're in this extraordinary place and, and both together at the same time, uh, this really has been, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, you constantly say, lead us not into temptation, and a better translation would be, save us from the time of trial. And, and I really do think, actually, we now understand what we were praying the good Lord to save us from. This is a trial. And, and if you're not feeling stressed, you're not understanding what's happening. Um, and it is, it is really difficult. Um, and, and I think the role of faith in all this is to, okay, so we can't connect traditional ways, let's find new ways of connecting. And we've got these disagreements in our uh, common life uh, as Americans, 
So let's find ways of talking about those disagreements. Um, and it's a season of, that needs deep imagination and creativity and innovation and thinking of, constantly thinking of new ways uh, to find ways of uh, confronting these challenges. That's the gift of the moment, but it's hard mm. um, and, and exhausting. Um, and to go, yeah. has, the, has the theological seminary, um, you know, given given the situation that we find ourselves in over the last year, year and a half, um, in terms of using how do we use technology um, to connect, you know, members of our community through worship when, at a time, you know, ultimately most, if not, um, you know, majority of communities. We, we had to close our doors out of safety and um, security. Uh, you know, I mean, it was something when I was in rabbinical school, they never told us what if the entire world shuts down? How do we embrace technology? How do we use technology? Um, you know, it was it was every rabbi in the country uh, fending for themselves and trying to, you know, pivot very quickly. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my rabbinical school by saying, given the challenges today, are we informing or are there classes on how do we how do we use technology to embrace and bring people back in a time where we are, you know, fragmented or we, we, we are, um, you know, we're polarized in some way. Has, has the seminary thought in terms of the way forward? Yeah, no, we've, we've what every congregation's done, we've done too. And we've all had to scramble. So I think that's just, you know, the, the, that has been the challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, it was so funny. I was, I was Zoom morning prayer on my iPhone this morning. And so I was listening to the intercessor, got to the intercessions, and she said, um, you, know, you know, express your intercessions either silently or aloud or in the chat box. You know, it's like, <laughs> whoa, okay, uh, we've arrived. It's another vehicle of communication. Yeah. And, um, and it is just, uh, I, I do think, the um, you know so I brought my office virtual reality goggles uh, and playing around with my team meeting being virtual reality. Unfortunately, we never got around to implementing it because uh, two of my team went down COVID themselves. So we will circle back around and try it again. But I do think that that's that's the attitude you must have. You know, it's, it's I mean it's constantly finding ways of uh, creating instruments and vehicles um, that can um, bring people together so they have a sense of not being alone. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been playing Zoom games and um, with, with family and friends and uh, we do a quiz for my mother-in-law who's locked in Goodwin House um, at the age of 89 and uh, she always wins. Um, you know, so we do, we're finding all sorts of ways of just, um, you know, uh, creating in new ways uh, the gift that faith depends upon, which is connection. Mm -hmm. And that is the project of our moment.
Does it feel like skim milk though? And you're just waiting so we can get back to whole milk or are there times during the seminary where you're just like, wow, we just discovered something and how we do formation here at the, at the seminary that we never would have discovered if we were just going back to the normal times. So during this, this crazy season we're in, where of course we would love to be dining together, eating together, hugging together and doing all the things you said there is such a prized part of our formation as, as spiritual leaders. Um, have, has there been a lot of fruit though that has been born that you're like, wow, God brought us to this moment and God is showing us something that we never would have seen um, pre-COVID. So I think, I think we are making discoveries. Um, and I think that this infrastructure we're now building of Facebook Live, webinars, um, Zoom um, meetings and events um, will actually continue. I don't think it's going to go away. You, you know, there, there are all sorts of, you can basically approach for your show, almost anybody in Lancaster at the minute, because you've got all these people who are not traveling anywhere. So you've got all this extra time in those lives. So if you reach out to John Meacham, or if you reach out to uh, Michael Curry, if you reach out to whomever, you'll be amazed the number of people who now say yes, mm-hmm. if all they've got to do is sit in their pajamas and join a Zoom call and participate in an event in your church especially if that still comes with a small check. Remuneration still helps the system. Some things don't change. <laughs> and, um, and you can actually now create the best Lenten program that you've ever invented in the world because you can reach out to all sorts of people who say, sure, I'll come on a Sunday morning for half an hour to chat to your congregation. Um, so we are discovering uh, that the one, one thing we've learned is geography no longer matters. Mm-hmm. You can have a Brit participate in your congregation. Um, you can have all your friends from rabbinical school um, participate, especially with the time difference. It means they've got to be up later, but hey, um, you know, there are all sorts of things. And therefore, once we've, now geography's disappeared, that is a gift. We suddenly realize how we can be connected and it doesn't require travel. It doesn't require overcoming the distance. Um, but having said all that, yeah, the full fat milk I'm looking forward to because I do think there is something precious about um, that proximity where communication is full. And by that, I mean body language, look. You sense more carefully when people are unhappy. You sense disquiet. You know, you can be more tuned to where the group is. You can pray together. You can enjoy a silence. You know, all that is still, you know, still better. But we are discovering ways of making, overcoming geography and doing things well. And that's good. All right, we are listening right now to the very reverend Dr. Ian Markham of Virginia <laughs> Theological Seminary. He is the dean and head of the, of the school um, here on A Priest and a Rabbi. We are going to take a quick break to acknowledge all those people that we are giving um, numerations to, to uh, or they're giving to us for, for us to keep the lights on here. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll continue with uh, the second half of the show uh, with the uh, the, the very Reverend Dr. Ian Markham talking about it. what does leadership or religious leadership formation look like in 2021 with all of the wild news that comes to our plate every single day. So we'll see you in just a couple minutes.
You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU 1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. Hey, everyone. This is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications. So you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we. This podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked though was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center, and so you can call if you're looking for a counselor, or someone to be there for you during a challenging time, and you can call the church at seven seven two two eight seven three two four four. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over. 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to part two of A Priest and a Rabbi. This is Father Christian Anderson from St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Steered, Florida, and next to me is the most handsome rabbi this side of the Jordan River. Um, and today um, we are talking about how do you form religious leaders during a very contentious time in our country to meet the needs of, of, of a country that's hurting, um, uh, that's, that, that we are in a time of trial, and, but also in a time where technology is really the leading way of communication, uh, we can't be in close proximity physically with one another as we like to. So how does that change the way that we communicate the love of God and the fellowship of God? Um, 
And so we brought on today uh, the very Reverend Dr. Ian Markham from Virginia Theological Seminary, uh, a seminary out um, just outside of DC. So they really are feeling uh, firsthand uh, the pangs of, uh, of, of, of our country right now um, and asking him how, how has he changed the way that they, he, he and his team are forming the leaders. Um, so this last, uh, the first half of the show, we, we learned about Dr. Um, uh, Markham and, and we talked about the skim milk versus home milk approach of, of, of formation right now. Does it just feel like skim milk? We just can't wait to get back to normal or have there been some, some new things that have uh, that arrived that are really cool that we'll, we'll keep. Um, can we just talk about more of, uh, so in the second part, we, we, there's, there's, I think a big challenge for religious leaders right now. And I, and maybe my rabbi and I have talked about this on the show and it might really depend upon your context, but, um, has there been a request and a call from the students, um, that knowing now that in any given congregation, even if you're in a conservative or liberal area, there's some churches maybe that are very homogenous, but I know that Rabbi and I come from congregations where you can't expect that everyone's on the same line. And it's about political ideas, social ideas, racial ideas. Um, and so approaching these, is there a skill set of just being a strategist, <laughs> of knowing how to speak the truth of what the scripture is saying and how we think God is talking to us, but at the same time, having common sense and having tact to know how do you approach these truths of scripture without placing IEDs in your congregation um, and starting just a little mini battle zone. Um, does that come up at all? For, or do you guys talk about that now uh, during these last four years? Uh, uh, does it come up? Oh, yes, uh, big time. So um, we have the spectrum on the campus. We're a national seminary. We draw nationally. Um, I would probably suspect about a quarter of the population seminaries uh, right of center and then three quarters of left of center. So we also have a clear gravity, sense of gravity to, tending more left than right. Um, so a couple of things, I, you know, in terms of how to navigate this, we, we send a, a set of messages. The first is distinguish between that which you might have an opinion on and that which is really gospel. So in other words, you know, we can spend a lot of time. There's, there's, it's not the, the issue of borders, for example, and your immigration policy. You know, that's a global question. Every nation struggles with it. Every nation comes up with slightly different answers. They all want some sort of mixture between you know, secure borders and uh, attracting the most able in to be um, uh, allowed to work in a place. You know, so therefore don't suddenly take, you know, an MSNBC talking point and make it the heart of your sermon. You know, this is something that people of faith are allowed to disagree about. And it's not obvious that there's a clear and overwhelming obvious position that you should take. But, if it comes to a situation where somebody's clearly using language of white supremacy and uh, implying that somebody else is less, or if somebody's sort of suggesting the protocols design have some validity uh, and lapsing into anti-Semitic talk, you know, th then you sort of need to push back. You need to say, look, um, you know, there, there are lines you do not cross. There are places you do not go. 
and um, and there's a sense in which you do then have an obligation to disrupt. Um, so I, I I like to distinguish between you know stuff you think politically you hold where you happen to be, and then what really matters. I think the other thing that we try to stress is uh, why does anybody come to a worshiping community? You come partly to place the sheer exhausting challenges of living and life into some other frame. Mm -hmm. So the worst thing you can do, I think, if you're leading congregation is simply repeat cable news headlines. Right. I think that's just cruel, you know, because they've been listening to cable news all week. So now what you need to do is you need to say, okay, let's place the moment we're living in context of eternity. And of course, in all this, I mean, you know, go back to the pandemic for a moment. The biggest gift of the pandemic is every single person living through this pandemic will learn to appreciate so much more than normal. You know, we lived 2019 having no idea how good we were having it. Right. And if we don't learn that discipline that every morning we wake up and say, thank you, God, this is amazing. I'm allowed to go and see somebody. I'm allowed to go and have lunch with my mother-in-law who's in a retirement complex. You know, I'm allowed to go and smile. I'm allowed to shake somebody's hand. That's so cool. Right. You know, I mean, so so you one one work of a of a faith-based community is to just take the mundane and put it in the context of the eternal. And and what you need to do is you just need to say, okay, everything seems against you. However, the news of our faith community is that uh, the source of everything that is is for you. And however much you're battling and difficult things are. You just need to know that the Judeo-Christian claim is that you're invited into a relationship with the source of everything that is, and that is true. You know, so I, I so I, I sort of distinguish between what really matters and what doesn't, and then place everything in the context of the eternal. And I suppose the third thing I would probably say is that I, I think one challenge that... Um, so, so there's a refrain in the Episcopal Church, we need people who are willing to be uh, prophetic preaching, okay, and, and by that it often means um, being willing to denounce the powers of the day and, you know, and be in the tradition of Amos and, you know, the great uh, 8th century uh, prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so, so this becomes a sort of, you know, model. And, and then what happens, of course, is you basically then pick the congregation that gives you the right sort of prophetic preaching. So anti-abortion over there and uh, anti-immigration over there, right? And then you round it off. What, what actually I think faith communities can do and should do more of is I think it's, it's healthy if there's around the programming, and so in other words, not in the middle of a, a formal worship service, but opportunities for people to hear their views articulated and defended and understood you know so in other words do the exercise where you sort of say okay um, let's take the topic of guns and let's think a little bit about how would 
the person who's a member of the NRA defend their position? And how would somebody who was heavily influenced by Sandy Hook defend their position? And let's do the exercise of hearing their case. Now, at least everybody's heard their view expressed, as well as hearing the view that's diametrically opposed to the one they hold. So this um, would be something I don't, I don't know if you remember. Right there, yeah. that's, that's a form of formation that a, a temple or a, uh, a church could do like on a Wednesday night or something like that, you're saying. That you yeah, propose. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Make it a Lenten program. I mean, you know, I don't know when, when I taught Christian, but I used to do this all the time. You know, defend positions I don't hold and do so in such a way that the person holding it would understand that I got it. You know, and, and I just think, do that on the environment, do that on immigration, do that, do, take every contentious issue there is, but make sure, now there are clearly some positions you never defend, you know, overtly anti-Semitic or overtly racist, so there, are, there is a boundary here, but within that boundary, sort of do the exercise of illustrating that you're in a community that understands people disagree about these things and can articulate how that difference can be explored yeah no, that's it's, it's a wednesday night have you guys tried this at the seminary at all or done that on an elective or you know what i did is is um so i do it in my classes oh, okay. okay so i do it all the time in my classes so i've got every moral question and i defend lots of different positions from capitalism to socialism to marxism to um you know um uh, deep deep ecology, all the way through to instrumentalism. So I do that all the time in my classes, but I actually did, uh, it, it was weird, it was in February in Alabama. I went and did a men's conference. And what I did is I, 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 I pushed all the chairs to the edge of the room, so everybody was sitting around the edge of the room. And then I walked around the room defending different positions. And then everybody had to walk to the position they held. And it was really interesting. First of all, you discover where your congregation is. But the second thing, of course, is everybody was very comfortable with the fact that you had views they would otherwise not allow to be articulated in the congregation. But because it came with their own view being defended and articulated, they were fine with it. I, I, I wonder too, I mean, I mean, I love the idea and I love the dialogue and the conversation, but that is also under the assumption that people come into it with an open mind, with the ability to listen and um, validate someone else's viewpoint, not negating their own, but but being open-minded. I guess I guess you know my question, my concern would be, how do we engage in those conversations to those who don't wish to engage in the conversation at all and are very close-minded? You know, one of my big worries, which I'm I I I'm want to write about. I've I've been obsessed with conspiracy theories, right? And I've written quite a lot on conspiracy theories. And I had little seasoned notoriety when I took on the 9-11 truthers, which were the group of left-wing advocates who insisted that George W. Bush organized 9-11. And, uh, and it, it, I got involved with this argument with a professor of philosophy, very distinguished professor of philosophy, David Ray Griffin, who was a 9-11 truther. And it was, that was when I actually suddenly started realizing that um, the sociological nature of knowing. In other words, you know, uh, we're, we're all in, we are all in our bubbles, right? It's not just they are in their bubbles, we're all in our bubbles. Then the question is, what's shaping your bubbles and how attentive are you 
to the bubble you're in. <laughs> okay. And I think you actually start there. So you start by saying, I'm in a bubble too, and you're in a bubble. So to try and navigate my bubble, these are the sources of information I take very seriously. I read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and I read the Washington Post and The Economist. Okay, so what are your sources? You know, and then you can start talking a little bit about, okay, so is, is, is it a good source? Why do you find it interesting? Who recommended it to you? Why do you trust them so much? And start getting a sort of sense of the ecology of who we are and why we're weighing some things more importantly as others. And, and I think that's actually the nature of the work, really. And if you have the opportunity to be in a circle of somebody who is nervous about including you and you're an atypical source, seize it. Because, and you know, it won't be a conversion next day, it'll be five years later, mm. but you will, could be the first seed that says, okay, perhaps the world's a bit more complicated than, than I thought. One of the reasons why I'm so interested in this is because I grew up in a cult myself. So I, I know how bubbles can be mm -hmm. all encompassing, but they are sociological. It's literally the people you talk to that determine and read and watch and view and tweet and follow. <laughs> so on um that actually determines the way you're going to be looking at the world and then your moral responsibility as a jew as a christian is to say okay lord are my sources appropriate i see i think that's a perfectly proper sermon and not offensive at all to anybody right providing you say yeah sure there are liberal elites who you know have their own bubble and they do i mean you know let's not kid ourselves of course they do so before, you know, we're, we're nearing, uh, we're getting to the fifth act here, and I, I have to ask you about this because it's just, it's, it's, it's a, a stat and a phrase that we hear a lot. So I'm going to change directions a little quickly here um, about just the state of faith in, in the United States of America. Um, I, I'm reminded of uh, recently uh, a, a missioner that went to Ethiopia. And he said, you know, uh, all, you know, usually when I grew up, we were always praying for Ethiopia. Just praying for them, praying for they would be get the food, the strength, the faith to be there. And he goes, and we go over there, and we're all excited, and we come with our medical supplies, and we show up at the church, and they're all praising and praising and praising. And we're like, what are they praying for? They're like, they're praying for America. What? Why are they praying for us? Because they feel America's so lost that it's just lost God, that it's just this hedonistic place, and they really, their hearts are broken. They're praying for America, and so it's so it's like this this part where. Uh, Christians from around the world now sending missionaries to us, right? So we're the ones who they're saying, man, they're they're uh, they're kind of lost over there, becoming a secular country, and they need the love of God. Um, so we hear these stories, and as you, as someone who's now in charge of helping form the next leaders for the Christian faith, um, do you believe that that America is at a place where uh, faith is? Faith in the higher power, let's just put a Judeo-Christian or just, it's just a higher power um, is dwindling and people are becoming more um, secular humanists or atheists or really that stat that shows that atheism is rising is just people are always, that, that stat has not changed. That's always been there. Maybe people just didn't admit it and now they have the permission to admit it. But really at the end of the day, everyone's very curious about the divine. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts about this, particularly in America? So um, 
the, the interesting thing about America is actually it's still uh, pretty religious. I mean, certainly compared to Europe. Um, and the, uh, the growth of the nuns, and by that I don't mean N-U-N-S, uh, I mean those of no religious affiliation, it's not at all obvious that all of them are atheists. In fact, lots of them are the sort of spiritual, not religious types. So don't get too despairing on the state of religious belief in America, but religious practice is declining. You know, congregations are weaker. But that again, it was, it was Putnam's classic book, Bowling Alone, that got this entirely right. He anticipated the trend and saw it coming. Churches are declining less rapidly than Freemasonry, Rotary, Lions, all these community organizations. So whoopee-doo, good news <laughs> for the day. If you think you've got problems, thank goodness you're not running the Freemasons. Okay, now the question is, so why? Why? What's happening? What can you do about that? You know, and what's happening is the proliferation of options on a Sunday or Saturday, uh, the uh, sheer uh, exhaustion of modernity and living, uh, the, the sense that church is sort of work, but you not only have to, or, or synagogue, you have to go, you have to contribute, you have to, a lot of the time it's boring, you know, um, my son used to complain that church was boring, you know, I used to tell him, yeah, it's good for you to sit in boring situations, that's the gift of church, um, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, it's, it's actually, the, the problem is, is civic participation, the question is, how do we solve that one? Well, that would have to be another podcast set and radio show that if you uh, have time in the future, we'd love to bring you back on to actually talk about that topic. But we, we had to at least touch on it and tease it because I know that's one that you address a lot at the seminary um, and push back on the voices that say, oh, we're in this post-Christian, post-religious time in our yeah. country. And um, so, Dr. Markham, you are a writer, and if people want to learn more about all these wonderful ideas you're throwing around, besides attending the seminary or visiting the seminary, what are some other ways that they can just get some of your goodies and learn more about this, uh, your, your, your views on, on our beloved world and God? What a lovely question. Um, thank you for that. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you. This has been a cool show, and you two are great. And, um, and thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've, I'm, I'm addicted to writing. It's how I relax, go, go, go weird. Um, you know, if, if people wanted an introduction, Understanding Christian Doctrine is my little book, which tries to explain what we as Christians are claiming about the world. And then Do Morals Matter is my little book, which takes you through every eth ethical issue facing uh, society, including cyber ethics. That was a, in the new edition. That was the first time I really thought about cyber ethics. So yeah, this is a, so you can go all find that on Amazon. Um, we just can't wait to to have you have you back. Uh, for all of you who might have missed cool. some of the show, this is a podcast. We edit this and we throw this up. So all you have to do is just Google a priest and a rabbi podcast. So you can hear the full thing of what uh, having the very Reverend Dr. Ian Markham here and subscribe, subscribe to the podcast or find us on Facebook, a priest and a rabbi podcast and follow us there to get all the updates. And you can see the video of this interview right now. You can see the bright shining faces of Rabbi Durbin. You can actually see his hair that we talk about. You can see how slim and handsome the very Reverend Dr. Ian 
Markham is and how much of a clown and a beast that I am. So we love you. God bless you. We will see you here next Friday on 1450 AM from a priest and a rabbi and from Dr. Very Reverend Dr. Markham. Bye-bye. Thank you.